You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Tom. Hey, Bob. How are you? Can't complain. How are you doing? Uh, terrific. Um, uh, enjoying the weather down here in D.C. and uh, my new grandson. So, uh, Congratulations all, all on the grandson. Thank you. As I was, Thank you. As the cliche goes, all of the fun, none of the responsibility. Absolutely. Uh, let me explain how we came to talk. I, 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 I think you probably need no introduction for almost all of our audience. You're, you're Thomas Friedman. Uh, I, I called you in a recent uh, piece of mine in my non-zero newsletter, the Dean of American Foreign Policy columnist. I think that's fair. You've written a lot of books, very well known. Um, and that that piece is uh, the way we came to to uh, to talk, to have this conversation. Um, I. Uh, I was writing about Ukraine and how I thought America was partly responsible for getting us into this mess, American foreign policy. And in fact, a certain amount of my argument, I think you agree with, because yeah. it was about the folly of NATO expansion and you were arguing against NATO expansion back in the 1990s. Uh, but in the course of my piece, I was critical of something you'd written recently. Um, because we've known each other a while, I sent you a, an email, a heads up. Uh, and uh, and said, wanted to let you know I've been critical. If you'd like to come on, uh, talk about it on my podcast, feel free. Somewhat to my surprise, you took me up on the offer. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful. Um, and, uh, and also you became a subscriber to my newsletter. So this is my new business model is you just go around criticizing people. <laughs> it doesn't scale. It doesn't scale well. But, you know, <laughs> one per week, it's growth. It's growth. <laughs> well, you know, I should say that, um, uh, you know, you sit where I sit, you get criticized a lot. Um, uh, so much of it, in my view, is sort of not on the level. It's sort of station identification by people who just kind of use you to tee off uh, on whatever. But um, when I get thoughtful criticism, serious criticism that really, you know, um, requires me to sit down and think more deeply about what I've said or respond, um, I always take it up. Uh, I, I take my serious critics seriously. And um, I think that's how you learn. So uh, it was not at all surprising for me. So um, it's what I do. Okay. Well, uh, thank you. So the uh, maybe we'll, uh, I guess, cut to the chase. And, and I, I want to turn this into a much broader conversation yeah, before sure. long about too, yeah. foreign yeah. policy, the, the role of Please. journalists and commentators in shaping American foreign policy and so on. Um I focused on this. I'll quote from your column, the things yeah. I quoted in my piece. Your column was about Ukraine. Um, and you said Putin is a one man psychodrama with a giant inferiority complex toward America that leaves him always stalking the world with a chip on his soldiers. So big, it's amazing. He can fit through any door. A, re a retired K KGB. There are some ellipses in here, but yeah, I, you go absolutely. on a retired KGB agent who simply refuses to come in from the cold. He still sees the CIA under every rock and behind every opponent. Uh, he's America's ex-boyfriend from hell who refuses to let us ignore him and date other countries like China. He's uh, a modern-day Peter the Great out to restore the glory of Mother Russia. Um, my complaint was partly that it just, it, it, you know, and it's not like it, it's a it's it's a fundamentally inaccurate. Uh, portrait. It's almost more the way, <laughs> the somewhat unflattering right. way in which you chose to cast every right. aspect of him that you highlighted. Yes. And, and I said, it kind of makes him sound like somebody you can't be reasoned with. Uh, and and then I went on to quote uh, you saying that, uh, you know, if he wants to come down from the tree in which he's lodged himself, he's going to have to jump or build his own ladder. He has completely contrived this crisis so there should be no give on our part. So you're basically saying, yeah, there is 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 no point uh, in um, in. Well, maybe uh, I, I'll just I'll leave it there. I won't paraphrase. It. I, yeah. I won't characterize it myself. But but uh, I, I guess the, the backdrop of my criticism is that I think very often when the U.S. is in a kind of adversarial relationship, and, uh, and and often when there's the possibility of conflict looming uh, or maybe the possibility of a Cold War looming, perhaps with conflict mixed in, as as is the case with both Russia and China, um, I I think there's there's a tendency to um, start 
characterizing the leadership on the other side in very negative terms, which is often in order, but I think that can get in the way of um, thinking clearly about them, depending on the nature of the negative characterization. I mean, for example, one thing you've heard about Putin, uh, Julia Yaffe, some time ago kind of uh, greatly annoyed me by saying Putin is crazy. There aren't many people who have been in power as long as he has who are crazy, <laughs> yeah. right? They are rational thinkers. And, and, and uh, I, I, I have issues about the way the Iranian leadership is characterized. I similarly, I think, I think they have shown a fair amount of realpolitik. They are, you know, they, they aren't like loony, uh, you know, um, jihadists as they are sometimes characterized and, and so on. Um, so I, I kind of think there's this bias that naturally happens when uh, relations with another country get tense. And, and I would encourage everyone with a job like yours to think about possibly neutralizing the tendency, fighting against it, as opposed to reinforcing it. So you take the, the general critique, yeah. right? Well, it, it's, um, it's why I am decided to respond to you, because I think it's, there's a lot of legitimacy in what you said. And so um, the reason I listen to my serious critics is um, I think sometimes they have a point. Uh, uh, but let me not give you my side. So you describe where you're coming from on this story. And you alluded to it before. Um, I was I was against NATO expansion before it was cool. Um, uh, uh, it was in terms of the punditocracy. I was a one man band, um, you know, back in the 90s. Um, myself, Mike Mandelbaum from Johns Hopkins. Bill Perry, interestingly, was a quiet supporter of ours, then Secretary of Defense. Mm -hmm. um, I consider it, they, I, I consider NATO expansion, as I wrote about at the time, a, a Versailles level imposition on the Russians. That uh, we took a country that was weak, that had lost a war, and imposed on it um, uh, restrictions or, or, or dangers or threats that at the time it was too weak to oppose. Um, and I went out and called your neighbor then in Princeton, George Kennan, um, and asked him about it. Um, and one of the great thrills of my life as a foreign policy writer, you know, to, to have had a long conversation with him on it. And he said, one day we will regret this. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I, I've always uh, deeply opposed it. I thought we made a terrible decision, Bob, back in the 90s to trade the potential of bringing Russia at least into the partnership for peace, if not into the West, in mm -hmm. Russia, that it had an authentic, peaceful revolution. Um, and we traded that for Bulgaria in NATO. Um, and I, I just thought it was a one of one of the worst mistakes ever. And by the way, it was done for cynical, I think, political reasons here too. It had to do with Eastern European votes and just uh, and a lot of other other things. So because of that, um, I come at this story a little differently, which is that hey, I've been fighting for you guys, um, sort of um, being empathetic to your interests um, for a long time before I ever sat down to write either my last column or before that. And at the same time, I also understand, but you talked about Iran, talk about the Middle East. Without Russia's help, we'll never restore the Iran deal, you know, which I thought was also one of the stupidest things we ever did was to tear it up. And so, and, like, and Russia was helpful the first time around oh, in getting yeah, the deal to begin with. And by the way, it will, this will only get the deal restored if Russia takes the nuclear fuel, basically, or the, the, um, uh, re, the, the fissile material mm -hmm. off Iran's hands and store it. So I'm, I'm keenly aware that um, uh, Russia, you know, is a really important player and partner here. And at the same time, I've also watched Putin's behavior. I've watched how many journalists he's killed or have had jump out windows, how many people he's poisoned, um, uh, how much money he's ripped off from the Iranian, uh, for the Russian economy, the civilian airliner, his missile shot down over Europe. And, and so because of that, I sort of lost my taste. I'm just speaking personally here for kind of being empathetic to this guy. I also see how he has behaved toward his own domestic. He's basically wiped out his domestic opposition, poisoned Navalny and then jailed him. And so I think what you saw, I'm just getting you in my own head, a little bit coming out was a kind of screw you, pal. I'm, I'm, I, yeah, that's that I, <laughs> um, I, uh, uh, I, I stuck my neck out for you, your country, you know, for a long time. And by the way, I've been to Ukraine and I, I really admired what Ukrainians have done and been empathetic to them to achieve their own independence. So if you ask me, sometimes, you know, that was also my station identification. Now, okay, things have moved on then. And since then, 
I would be perfectly uh, comfortable if we said to um, uh, Putin, um, you withdraw from Ukraine, you, you agree to sort of Finlandize Ukraine, and, and we will agree. Um, uh, and I, if, if that's getting him down the tree, I think I think that would be a big jump from him down the tree at the same time. Um, I think that would be an important move from our part for two reasons, Bob. Now, you is, mean, in effect, the neutral Ukraine? Right. Which would, well, like said, which would be agreeing not to extend NATO membership. Yeah, I, I first of all, again, I'm still against all this NATO expansion okay. because we are never yeah. going to defend these countries. But you we can are, see how I took away a very different lesson from your column. Yeah. When, I, I, when, I, totally. You know, when you yeah. said basically, screw him, right. don't yeah. talk to him almost. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I'm telling you sort of the, my mental mood at the time. Um, uh, but I'm telling you now, as things go forward, if he is ready to jump down from the tree by way of pulling out of or pulling back his forces, I would certainly be agreeable just as an American citizen and someone who thinks about these issues to um, uh, create a Finland like Ukraine where they're mm -hmm. not in NATO and they're not um, uh, under uh, Putin's thumb. Because I think that that also, if you ask me what Putin really cares about, Bob, it is yeah. actually not not Ukraine and NATO. It's Ukraine and the EU. Yeah. Ukraine is in a, a right. successful free market democracy standing every day in contradistinction to the Russia he's built. And so I would much rather tell the Ukrainians, you're not going to be in NATO. You're not going to be in the EU, but you can have a very intimate economic relationship with the with, with the European Union. I yeah. think that's where, where a potential deal is. So um, I'm going to accept your criticism on my tone. That's why I'm here today, because mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was legitimate. I'm just trying to tell you sort of where I've been coming from, the evolution of my own thinking. Um, and um, I have nothing more to say on that. I, I think you'll see as I write about this forward. Mm -hmm. I'm not apologetic, but I, I understand we have no interest in going to war with Russia over Ukraine. In fact, we're not going to. Yeah. And what my, my my position in NATO expansion was, we are never going to go to war to, to, to uh, protect Lithuania. So why are we extending our nuclear umbrella to people who ultimately we are not going to defend? Now, and Lithuania so, is in NATO, right? Yeah, the, all the Balts are. Right. And what I'm so saying is, you don't you don't think we would go to war? No, that's was that was to be even the, now that they're in NATO. How fraudulent NATO expansion was. OK, yeah. was that I, this was my critique 20 years ago. Um, you Don't extend our nuclear umbrella to countries we are not really going to go to war for at yeah. the, when the crunch comes. And, um, and again, at the time, you know, a lot of these countries, the, the balls were not. But I mean, look at Hungary today. I mean, am I going to go to war for Hungary, for Viktor Orban's Hungary? It's why I thought NATO expansion was a terrible mm. idea back well, then. Can yeah. I can I just give you three words of advice? Please. Write that piece. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, and I mean, seriously, yeah, because yeah. this is one of my big gripes about the current discourse. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, the the uh, there's very little discussion. It seems there's a lot of celebration of how Biden has kept the Europeans for the most part together. You know, and he sent in weapons and all of this has raised the costs of invasions. Putin's in a box. Great. But now you got to let him give him a way out of the box. And you have to accept, however much you dislike him, that it has to be a way that saves face with him, a way that is consistent with his political, uh, you know, constraints and, and his political goals. And almost nobody is talking the way you talk, and you have one of the most powerful platforms in the whole conversation. I I think it would be, you know, I think it would significantly influence the conversation. Yeah, well, the story has moved on since I wrote that column number one, and and, and it's evolved, and I'll, I I fully intend to come back to it. But when I said don't help him out of the tree, what I meant was in my own head is he's got to he's got to be willing also to tolerate. Uh, and invite and and support a neutral Ukraine. And right. um, that's something he's got to do. And so, but I, I take your point. And the reason I'm, we're having this conversation is I thought it was a legitimate criticism. Mm. And of course, the thing that Biden has seemed most emphatic about is we are not going to guarantee you a neutral Ukraine. That, yeah. He, he is almost, he yeah. is almost him to himself yeah. in there. Yeah. And, you know, there's just so little exploration of the various things you could you could say that might even be short of a formal commitment to never uh, accept Ukraine, and, and people aren't even talking about that, you know, like like uh, 
Biden saying things that basically establish that, look, you don't have to worry about it uh, and so on. Anyway, so the uh, only, let me let me just before I end, though, because this is where my let me do a backflip that I was critical of your criticism, uh-huh. which is because you use the term empathetic you know, thinking, yeah. strategic empathy, which I like. It's an interesting idea. Well, the, the, let me let me be clear. The, the term I, I use. Well, I, I have been involved in conversations using the term strategic empathy. That's not really my term. And neither is cognitive empathy. I mean, I didn't invent it, but that's the term I use. And I just want to establish that's not the same as emotional empathy. We're not talking about feeling Putin's pain, even caring about him. We're just talking about perspective taking, understanding how he views the world. That's that's all I mean. And 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 my my pushback, yeah. My pushback on you is that I think we owe the Ukrainians that as well. The majority in Ukraine, how they think of themselves, their future. These are people who since you know 1990s, early 1990s, have been struggling to be independent of Russia, mm-hmm. culturally, politically, economically, and militarily. And I think we owe them the same kind of uh, strategic empathy as well. Sure, but right now they are, with all due respect to them, not significant players. I mean, Putin is going to decide whether he's going to invade. We and the Europeans are establishing the incentive structure. The Ukrainians don't have all, you know, I mean, I mean, they're not, I don't think it's as, in terms of avoiding war, I think it's much more important to understand Putin's frame of mind than Zelensky's frame of mind, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's, and and again, I'm not saying don't care about their welfare. In fact, one thing that bothers me is, you know, we're, we're, we're sending in weapons and okay, if that succeeds as a deterrent, fine, that's good for the Ukrainian people. But there is this, this flip side, which is that then if there is a war, that could mean a longer, bloodier war. It could actually, in a perverse way, raise Putin's tactical aspirations. Uh, you just never know when you send weapons yeah, in or not or, or not, because, I mean, the kind it, of porcupine strike you do want sure. to say to Putin. It could go either no. way. Yeah, well, exactly. I just what I want to say is I haven't heard anybody talking about the possible downside of more weapons in Ukraine, right. meaning a longer, bloodier war. Syria is, of course, a different, very different case in billions of ways. But it is a case where we and, and our friends send in a bunch of weapons. And in the end, that got more Syrians killed, right. not fewer. That can happen. Um, so I want um, to, to, to uh, I want to quote something else you said in the 90s in this very same column where you uh, where you called up George Kennan and quoted him, and he he just sounds uh, uh, so prescient. Um, and it's it's a you should column. read a little read a little bit what he said if you have it there, but it is so prescient. Well, I mean, you know, your, I I want viewers, to yeah. uh, I want to if I can uh, yeah. find this thing that uh, you said. Here it is. Uh, this is you talking. You you you. I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you've gone back and looked at this column. You were you were devastatingly critical of the American foreign policy. Uh, establishment uh, of the time. Yeah. And I want to read the whole thing. Yeah, please. Uh, you say, but there is one one thing future historians will surely remark upon, and that is the utter poverty of imagination that characterized U.S. foreign policy in the late 1990s. They will note that one of the seminal events of the century took place between uh, 1989 and 1992, the collapse of the Soviet empire, which had the capability, imperial intentions, and ideology to truly threaten the entire free world. Thanks to Western resolve and the courage of Russian uh, Democrats, the Soviet Empire collapsed without a shot, um, and so on. And, and then you say, and what was America's response? It was to expand the NATO Cold War alliance against Russia and bring it closer to Russia's borders. I want to continue because this is where you really, you really bring down the hammer. Yes, to, you're right. Yes, tell your children and your children's children that you lived in the age of Bill Clinton and William Cohen, the age of Madeleine Albright and Sandy Berger, the age of Trent Lott and Joe Lieberman. And you, too, were present at the creation of the post-Cold War order when these foreign policy titans put their heads together and produced a mouse. Then you write, we are in the age of midgets. And that's a reference to all those people. You write, you write the, only, the only news is that we got here in one piece because there was another age, one of great statesmen. said, now, yeah. you know, uh, first of all, my commendation. But, but, you know, I would say my view is that it hasn't gotten much better since then. Mm-hmm. It really hasn't. And that's why, you know, I went through in, in, in the piece in my newsletter uh, and, and, and talked about versus Clinton's mistake of ex- expanding NATO. Uh, but then George W. Bush uh, promises NATO membership uh, to Georgia and Ukraine. Yeah. That was critical. The Europeans right. didn't want it. He foisted yeah. it upon them. 
I'm also critical of what he did in Kosovo because unlike what we did in Bosnia and unlike the Afghanistan war and unlike the Persian Gulf War, that did not have the authorization of the UN Security Council. And as a result, Russians can point to it. We, you can quibble about the details and, and how good an analogy this is, but they cannot implausibly point to it as being a case where we use force to change borders and also analogous to their meddling in Georgia and so on. So I think that was a mistake. And then you get to Obama and this, we don't have time to get into this much, yeah. but I thought it was a big mistake to get involved in Ukrainian politics to the extent that we did, uh, you know, the famous passing cookies out on the Madan uh, thing and, and the intercepted phone call where Putin has our people basically uh, behind the scenes anointing the next leader of Ukraine right before the current democratically elected president uh, leaves the country for fear of his life as his opponents roam the streets with guns. I mean, it's not crazy for Putin to see that as, well, it certainly allows him to call it a U.S. orchestrated coup. And, and, and it's not crazy of him to see that as a kind of meddling that if he did it in Mexico would drive us crazy and lead uh, possibly to intervention. We are famous for intervening with force uh, if if necessary, um, when comparable things happen anywhere near us. And we have a very expansive conception of our neighborhood. So, and, and I can take this all the way up to the current and, and, uh, moment. And so can and, I, let me just, let me just sure, respond. Sure. But yeah. Um, and again, because um, uh, the reason I took note of your newsletter and criticism is uh, I like to team B myself. Um, I like to stress test my arguments. And what I, I learned from our little conversation and now our bigger conversation is not that I particularly say I was wrong, but that how much I um, took my personal dislike of Putin for what he was doing to the Russian people and a country that I thought also had huge human talent and, and deserved to be incapable of being a country with consensual politics, you know, um, uh, that could um, enable its people to realize its full potential. How much I've actually resented that, not to mention his meddling in our own election, um, uh, and and maybe twisted the knife a little bit more in this column than I normally would have, um, you know, given my long-term view of this story. So that's why I responded to your criticism, because mm -hmm. I said to myself, hey, is your dislike of Putin for what he's done to Russians, by the way, what he's done to us in messing in our election, um, translating into a position on this geostrategic situation that if you're looking at it de novo, would not necessarily be. So that's mm -hmm. where I was coming from. Um, and uh, that's, and, and one of the things I always tell people about column writing is that, um, this goes back to being a foreign correspondent, um, is that I'm engaged in a in a dialogue with myself, with the story, with the reader, and um, never judge me from one column. Again, I'm not apologizing for what I wrote. I'm explaining to you where I was coming from and why your criticism um, made me say to myself, because this comes from a serious person who I respect, this is something on the level. You need to think about this. I'm telling you how I thought about it. Well, that's great. Uh, and I really appreciate it. Again, that you that you uh, I wouldn't even be here right seriously. now. Yeah, it wouldn't be here right now. I'm I'm happy to say um, that. Yeah. I, I'm wondering what you yeah. think about my claim that, on balance, American foreign policy hasn't uh, passed beyond the age of midgets, as you put it back in the 1990s. I mean, there have been ups and downs. I give Obama great credit uh, for the Iran deal that took work. So did I, I give him less yeah. credit. I don't think he thought Syria through just suddenly saying we want, you know, Assad must go. That's a big thing to say. And and I think well, what he really didn't think through was Libya. You know, um, well, well, know, again, yeah, and that, yeah. you know, in my column, I didn't yeah. have time to list all the things we've done that have driven Russia crazy. But just quickly, we got them to sign on. Uh, I don't know if they voted for it, but they didn't veto it is the key thing in the Security Council to an intervention on humanitarian grounds. Yeah. We were yeah. going to protect a civilian population. Midway through, we decided to turn it into a regime change operation. They felt betrayed, not not crazily, I thought. And, you know, it, it just seems to me this is it's a particularly glaring example 
but we just got have gotten in the habit of throwing our weight around just assuming that everybody's going to take it because we have been the most powerful country in the world we ha- we were the leader of the west during the cold war i i i'm you know what is your assessment of and again i i, I just think some fundamental to get back to george kennan some fundamental features of good foreign policy uh like just always putting yourself in the shoes of the other person trying to clear away any any uh personal feelings and 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 reminding yourself things are going to look different from their perspective all politicians have interests leaders of other countries have interests you may not like them but you can't expect them to defy their kind of incentive framework all of these 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 basic psychological uh kind of accompaniments of good policy i think i just don't i just don't see in 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 the people who have been guiding our foreign policy including uh including the ones who are doing it now what's what's your take uh are, are we still in the age of midgets or or what yeah so i really have to go back to the beginning of just sort of my own evolution as a columnist. And um, for me, Bob, the most um, searing experience I had um, is that uh, I lived through a civil war in Beirut. So I saw a country fall apart uh, before my eyes. And um, that um, gave me a certain bias toward order, frankly. It made me fear disorder. I I saw real crazy disorder. Um, I saw that societies can break down. And so if I had any bias in foreign policy, which reflected itself in um, my position on NATO expansion as well, it was how do you get order and then try to give order a positive slope uh, toward decency and then from decency uh, to hopefully consensual politics. That's kind of my, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of, a, a, some people would accuse me of you know, being being um, a, a, a little tentative or whatever you want. I don't even know what the right word is, but that that's where that comes from. That changed one time in my life um, uh, around the after 9-11. Um, and, and 9-11 completely knocked me off my game. I've talked about it. There's no no question about it. Um, I, I supported the, uh, for, for democracy reasons, the intervention in Iraq. Um, uh, and But I wanted it to be done under UN auspices because I knew it would be really hard and I don't want to relitigate all of that now. After Iraq, I, the lesson I learned from that was that the alternative to um, demo- to autocracy in the Middle East, at least, is not democracy, it's disorder. So on Syria, I was never an advocate of, I was just really wary about the whole thing. And on Libya, uh, ditto. Um, so ever since then, I've been much uh, more cautious in in my um, my whole approach to this story. Now, at the same time, um, I guess what my criticism of you would be is that we're, we're asking um, uh, to really get inside in an almost empathetic way, you know, how these people are looking at the world and what are their concerns. And um, I think it, it can um, uh, also underestimate just how mendacious some of these people are over and above the sort of geopolitics and geostrategic situation. And um, I think that's a danger too. And so my whole approach to the world and writing about the world is is two things. One is I take every story in and of itself. That is, there is no Friedman doctrine other than, you know, try to break order into decency and then decency into something else. And so every one is separate for me. Um, But the other is, I, I called it, Bob, my kind of tilt theory of history. If you as a stateswoman or statesman, if all you do on your watch is you take something that was tilted at a negative slope and er, give it a positive slope, you've done a huge thing. So Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not for grand slams, which is why one of my heroes always was actually George H.W. Bush. I think he was the best foreign policy president we had in my lifetime because they helped take the Soviet Union without firing a shot and a casualty from a negative slope to a positive slope. Mm-hmm. If that's all you do. And so that's how I tend to look at these situations. Can I take, whether it's Syria or, or, or Libya today or or, um, uh, or, or, the, or the whole Russia story, China, can we take it from a negative slope to a positive slope? Now, let me add one other thing to this to bring you inside of my head. So I, 
I believe that often you have to hold three thoughts in your head at the same time when you're talking about foreign policy. So let me give you the example I give most. That's Israel. I think to think about Israel today, you have to hold three thoughts in your head at the same time. First thought, Israel is an amazing uh, state. What, what it's created in 100 years by way of medicine, culture, agriculture, the absorption of people, um, uh, technology, talent, Israel is an amazing place. Two, Israel does bad stuff. Israel does bad stuff um, in the West Bank to Palestinians. Now we see with this NSO thing, these are not, Israel does bad stuff. And third, Israel lives in a a deeply unstable uh, uh, neighborhood. Now, most people will tell you, they're either, they'll give you only one of those. So Israel's great. Israel only, Israel does bad stuff. If they live in a crazy neighborhood, leave them alone. No, I think to understand this place, you have to hold all three thoughts together in your in your head at the same time. And I will tell you the same about China. And this is, if you think my views on this are controversial, you should see how I get attacked on China. Because my view, um, uh, I once wrote that there's only one thing worse than one party autocracy. And that's one party democracy where one party is trying to govern and the other is trying to stick a spanner in the wheel all the time. Because I wrote, if you have a one-party autocracy like China and you have a reasonably enlightened leadership, by, by which I simply meant people who believe in physics you know, and engineering and Newtonian you know, uh, laws, um, not that they are, are, are not nice to Uyghurs, that they can actually order from the top down a lot of the right things. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm always trying to do with China, I'm not at all comfortable with where we're going there either, if you've been reading my stuff. Maybe much more than on Russia. But on China, I'm basically saying, I, I don't want a Cold War here, folks. I, I don't want a, a, a new you know, um, uh, digital Berlin Wall here. Um, but here's what my frustration, which I think again, you have to account for. Because I'm out there arguing, I may be the last sort of, person arguing for a stable relationship with China, I'm not getting any help from them. I'm not getting any help from them at all. And that's sort of where I came to. With, what would you like them Putin. to do? Yeah, you know, what I always say to the Chinese is that um, uh, if one day they would simply say, you know, Tom, this buds for you. It's true. We've been We've been messing around um, on- uh, That can on, probably uh, be arranged if it's just one year. <laughs> right. No, um, and what I mean is that if you watch what happened on trade with China, um, it was always heads I win, tails you lose. Um, and never did they sort of step back and say, okay, I, I'm going to be empathetic to you now. I see that our factories, our state-funded factories have gutted Ohio. So I'm actually going to take some pain on myself in order to do to not to do it to sustain the relationship, number one. The, the second thing I would like them to do is, um, would it be so bad? Remember the Australian the Australian foreign minister went on the radio station there six months ago and said, um, Sunday morning in Australia, it'd be really nice if China told us where the COVID virus coronavirus came from. What was their reaction? We're not going to buy your wheat. We're not going to buy your wheat, your coal. coal. We're not going to buy your beef. Um, we're basically going to economic. Wait, all I said was, we've just had a global pandemic that mm-hmm. by all accounts started in your backyard. And you will not tell us anything about where it started. Mm-hmm. And so when they're doing that, it's very hard for me to want to advocate here. You know, hey, we got to really be understanding of their geostrategic situation. Now, just to say that it's hard for me doesn't excuse me. Because I, I I got a big platform. That's sort of what you're saying. Hey, yeah. Tom, I get you. But remember, you have a big platform. People are going to read this. And the reason I'm here and having this dialogue is I, I like to team B myself. So that's that's what I'm doing today. No, it is very hard. And, uh, you know, something I got into a little in just, just yesterday's issue of the Non-Zero Newsletter is, yeah. is the connection between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy and how they, it, it makes it it makes it hard to do like yeah. uh for example if you if you empathize with in an emotional way with the situation of taiwanese people who don't want to be invaded don't want to be part of china it, it actually makes it harder to to do to put yourself in in the in the in the mind of a lot cockpit. of the people in china in mainland right. china who just consider that part of China and just just understand that it's a fact. They do. They would not consider yeah. it an invasion. You, you yeah. need to understand that. And you need to understand that Xi Jinping has a lot of people on his side, you know, like 
Autocrats are never really autocrats. They always need popular support. I, and I want to I, I want to um, I want to ask you how you feel about uh, a tendency that really uh, bothers me uh, in the in the current in the Biden administration foreign policy and among a lot of progressives, uh, which is to cast the current situation as some kind of death struggle between democracy and autocracy, right? We had this mm-hmm. summit of democracies and so on. Now, my view is that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, to the extent that you say, hey, we're the Democrats, we're the good guys, uh, you're going to make Russia and China more inclined to get together and work together, work together with other authoritarian uh, regimes, especially if you go around throwing economic sanctions in a semi-random fashion, but always in the direction of countries that you think need different leaders, Venezuela, Cuba, whatever. You're just, you're just kind of in- encouraging them. Well, you take my point, you know, and this is a big, this is kind of Biden's thing, right? It's okay, that, that's it. We have to go around and nourish uh, democracy. I personally think that uh, that's going to lead the whole world in a, in, in a bad place. I love democracy. I don't think it's even the path to getting democracy spread. You know, I'm yeah. curious what you think about this. This really. So let me big let me. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because I actually, um, especially during the pandemic. So I've visited China every year, I think, since um, since 1989. And so country I spent a lot of time in and and thinking about and um, uh the world is flat. It's actually my second largest book market. I sold more copies of the world's flat there in China than, than anywhere else and I've gotten paid for it. So um, I, uh, it's a, it's a country I think is just hugely important. Um, and here's what happened in the last two years, Bob, because all, all things are also personal. So I did a bunch. Of, I was the speaker for the China development forum, did a bunch of webinars with Chinese uh, organizations. And I would, if you listen to me, I'd say, you know what? We're, in a, we're, we're going. I, here is my argument: the, the the forty years from 1979 to 2019 were epic in U.S.-China relations. It was an epic I call of unconscious integration, where basically an American company could wake up and say, "I want to do business in China. I want to have a supply chain from China." Uh, American parents could say, "I want my kid to study at Fudan, you know, or or Tsinghua," and Chinese could say, "I want my kids to study at Ohio State, and I want to have a factory in Ohio." Okay, And it was an era of unconscious integration when we became what I call the real one country, two systems. It was really America and China. Now, the world had many ups and downs during those 40 years. But um, uh, on balance, I would argue that the last four decades, if you think about great power conflict, was a four decades of great power peace and a lot of global prosperity I'm not divided equally, but nevertheless, the prosperity and the relative peace of the world mm. over the last 40 years. And, and many people were pulled out of poverty in, right. in it, East well, and South 800, Asia. 800 million, you know. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so, again, this gets back to my three, three ways of looking at China. Authoritarian, just, you know, brutal on its own people, uh, you know, crack, just doing terrible stuff to Uyghurs and pulled 800 million people out of poverty. At the same time, so you've got to always look at these in, in this multidimensional way. And so, so that was my view, that, that this relationship was actually the most important thing accounting for global peace and prosperity um, uh, and, um, and stability of the last 40 years. Not the only thing, but of all the factors, it was the most important. So I don't want to lose that. So I, I would go and I do these webinars in China and I would say, hey, we're both kind of off the track. We, America, we've got to do this that we shouldn't be doing, okay? And you, China, you need to do this that you shouldn't be doing. Now, here's Mm -hmm. what happened. Here's what happened. The Chinese would take my remarks. They would translate them into English for the Global Times. They would just talk about what I said America has to do. Then they'd spew that out into the world. Then Fox or right-wing, you know, news sites would pick it up. And they'd say, look at Friedman, um, running dog, you know, pro-China thing. Now, I don't, I don't care. I, I can handle criticism, as you can see. I don't care about that. But my anger was with the Chinese because I was basically saying, wait a minute. I'm trying to do something really on the level with you. And your response is to take it and turn it, you know, um, uh, you know, against me and, and the whole story. So fuck you. You know what I mean? Mm. I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to be the only sucker in this story. All right. Um, I'm not going to be the only one who believes in this relationship. 
And so that's my, that's what I said. That's my problem. And I think you have to be careful, Bob, that in your strategic or, or emotional empathy to Cog- them. Cognitive empathy. Cognitive empathy. You also underestimate sometimes the true venality uh, of, of some of these parties and people or leaders, not people yeah. um, in these systems. And that that also can blow up on us. So that that's where I'm, I'm, that's yeah. my pushback on you, you know. I, I don't know. I have a pretty cynical view of, of people in general. I, I, mean, I, I think if anything, <laughs> if anything, my cognitive empathy, the corrective, you know, I mean, one thing it leads me to do is like uh, point out that, you know, as horrible as a lot of things they do seem to us, they look at us and they have a lot of objections that from their point of view uh, makes yeah. sense. I mean, from the strategic, for example, to, to us not granting them a sphere of influence uh, China, that is, uh, anywhere near as big a sphere as we have demanded for a long time, same with Russia, to uh, more kind of human rightsy issues. It's like, and you always have to be careful uh, and, and start out by saying, of course, what they're doing to the Uyghurs is horrible. It's a violation of human rights. I don't think we actually have as clear an idea as we sometimes think we do of exactly the, the magnitude and nature of it, but it's bad. And and I personally think uh the word genocide is being thrown around too casually. As you know, the word has expanded in meaning a lot yeah. since World War yeah. II. It's approaching the point where it's, I don't know how much value it is. It's being used so widely and applied to so many, many things. But I think we need to be careful in our language. Again, what they're doing uh, is horrible. Um, at the same time, there there are things that other countries can point to that, that we just don't think about. Like, like you know, if they say, so wait, you're born in America as a black male and your chances are almost one in three of winding up in prison. There's something wrong with your society. That's is that not a human rights issue, especially when some of these people are committing uh, drug crimes that if you're a white suburban uh, teenager, you're not going to get arrested for. I mean, you know, or, 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 or countries that just say capital punishment, that's primitive or this or that. Um, and, and I mean, I, I could go on, but I don't, you know, or even little things like when you say they are these leaders will they're willing for people to die for their political advancement well you know bill clinton let a mentally retarded man get executed to increase his chances of being elected president and and you you point to decision you can there are decisions made all the time by american yeah. leaders abroad where they know a bunch of civilians are going to get killed in the long run because they made that decision now they didn't personally put them in prison but I'll stop now. I, I just think we always, you know, have to. Uh, anyway, I deny that I underestimate the venality of any human being, <laughs> including you and me. Um, the, so let, me, uh, let me let me just say one one broader thing, because it gets to. So when I was um, an undergraduate, when I was back in Minnesota growing up, I wanted to be David Halberstam of the Middle East. I wanted I wanted to cover the Arab Muslim world. That was not a natural thing for a Jewish kid from Minnesota. And um, back in the 70s, it was actually thought of as an impossible thing. The New York Times would not actually let a Jewish person cover Israel or the Arab Is world. that right? Yeah. Um, and uh, oh, that, that was an unwritten rule. They thought they broke it with David Shipler. They were constantly overcoming it. Turned out he just looked Jewish. So um, they they uh, they actually broke it with me. So I was the Wait, first he was person. he was not Jewish. No, uh, yeah, but he just looked Jewish. So that was uh, so. Um, I was actually the first Jewish person to cover the Arab world for uh, the New York Times and for um, uh, and and from Israel. Um, but I actually preceded that because I didn't start at the New York Times. I started at UPI. So I went to graduate school. I sort of a classic British Arabist education at Oxford. And while I was at, when I graduated from Oxford, I applied to AP and UPI. But I knew I had to answer one question: How can a Jew be objective? about the Middle East. And so I actually thought about this a lot, uh, actually with my friend, Michael Sandel, who I went to um, uh, graduate school with. And here's, I, I came up with my own definition of objectivity, which is relevant to your point and was the first thing I thought of when I read your blog. I said, objectivity is not equal to ignorance. That is, some people thought the, the most objective reporter in the Middle East, we find a Gentile from Montana who's never met an Arab Jew in their life, and you plunk them down in the Middle East, they'll be the most objective reporter. That's mm-hmm. actually equating objectivity with ignorance. Um, uh, and I think that's not the right approach. The, the reporter is much more like a judge in a jury trial, not the juror. And so what my, the definition I came up with is that 
I think objectivity is a tension. It's a constant tension between understanding and disinterest. I can't possibly write a fair column about you or about Russia or about the Palestinians and Israelis unless I almost look at the world through your eyes. And at the same time, I can't write a fair column is if I don't maintain a certain distance and disinterest. And that's why objectivity, I say, is the constant tension between those two. And you rarely you know, find an equilibrium point. And so when I was the New York Times correspondent in Israel, you know, people used to write me, uh, you're, you're not objective, you're not fair. You, you, they pick out some 750 you know, word story I wrote about one thing. And what I told everyone, Bob, is judge me not on one column, because I'm constantly judge or, or one news story. Judge me on a year. Okay, if you read my stories for a year and you find that they've you know consistently tilted this way or that way, then you've got a case. Mm-hmm. But um, don't pluck out one thing because I'm in a dialogue with this story. Now, when you're a columnist and you're writing once a week now, you know you don't have the luxury of maybe that sort of constant dialogue where the next day I'd have a Russia column. I'm not apologizing for anything, but I'm just saying my, my dialogues are more interrupted and episodic now. But that's how I look at things. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to engage with this story. And the reason I your criticism um, struck me was I, I, that going back to my definition of objectivity, it fit right in there. And it made me say, okay, where, where, where am I on this story? And um, that's why I really, I pay attention to my critic, my serious critics, people who are, aren't just trying to take you down, but actually saying, hey, I read you and um, you might want to think about this. Now, I don't know how that will come out in my next column, but is what you said is not like something from outer space for me. It actually fits into how I look well, it into does. the yeah. world. Yeah, um, it does. So that, that, that's why. And I, I had the same challenge covering Palestinians versus Israelis or Israelis versus, you know, uh, Iran. I'm, I'm always you know, testing myself on that. Yeah. But the flip side is you can also be too understanding and miss things that way as well. And so that's that's why it's a constant tension. Yeah, uh, let, let me, I know you got to go shortly. Let me say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the backdrop for everything I've said uh, uh, about the way we need to look at uh, foreign policy and, uh, you know, how how much uh, attention we we should be paying to like internal issues within countries that we think could be remedied. And I think, frankly, we need to pay less attention to that and more attention uh, to engaging countries in a constructive way and avoiding war and stuff. And the, the backdrop for all that is, I think uh, as much as people do talk about climate change and should, I think there's a failure to appreciate that that is just one of many problems that are like climate change generically in that they are potentially existential and, uh, or at least collectively potentially existential and call for coordination and cooperation among nations broadly, okay? Obviously nuclear arms, but whole new kinds of arms races. Bioweapons is a real challenge. Weapons in space, cyber weapons. Uh, For that matter, do we want to address the dicey ethical issue of human genetic engineering in the context of a Cold War where we're worried like the Chinese are engineering super soldiers, I don't think I don't think we can we can address that. So I just think, you know, that the life is full of trade-offs and we can't solve all the problems at once. And I think if we appreciate the fact that the the, the very survival of the planet, or at least its survival in a form that we would want to live in, uh, is at stake. It would change the way we look at foreign policy, I think, in a direction that fundamentally you and I both approve of, yeah. which is so, a little realist, you know, yeah. uh, in the foreign policy yeah. sense of the term. So um, I told you when we began um, that I'm working on a new book, um, and the new book is exactly about this. My, my basic argument in, in a minute is that um, uh, why is every political party in the world blown up? Um, basically, if you look around the world, you know, the Tories became Brexit party, the liberals disappeared, Labour became Marxist, Republicans became a Trump cult, Democrats are blowing up before our eyes. I mean, it's actually going on everywhere. I argue because those those, those um, parties were born of the Industrial Revolution and a response to the Industrial Revolution. And um, my argument is we're going through a new Promethean moment right now. Um, uh, if you think of printing press, scientific revolution, agriculture revolution, industrial revolution, and uh we're going through this new moment right now. Um, and this new moment is, is, is basically defined by two cycles, a virtuous cycle in technology, 
sensing, processing, learning, sharing that gets faster and faster, and a vicious cycle in climate. Okay. And what they are doing is blowing away the walls, ceilings, and floors that defined left right politics for the industrial age. And what they're doing is making the world, giving it attributes of a difference of degree that is a difference of kind. The world's gotten really fast. That's about education, the, cha- the pace of change in technology. It's gotten really fused. We're now not interconnected, not interdependent. We're fused. It's gotten really deep. Technology's gone so deep. You just alluded to one of those technologies, um, uh, you know, DNA altering technology, genetic engineering. It's gotten really dual. Everything's dual use now. Everything, because anything that's digital is dual use. It's gotten really open. Anyone can play. And it's gotten really fragile because we're also interconnected. A virus in Wuhan can end up in Washington, you know, faster than ever. And my simple, the simple thesis of the book is that the only way to govern and stabilize that world is through what I call complex adaptive coalitions. You cannot solve any of those problems without complex adaptive coalitions. Um, and I take that from nature. Which is which are the most stable ecosystems in nature? Which ones thrive when the climate changes? Those that are have complex adaptive networks built on healthy interdependencies. So I become a non-zeroin um, late in life. Okay, I got there a different way. That's why your 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 critiques or your your arguments. You know, you're you're kicking on. I'm writing a whole book about this. I'm going to be so much more non-zero than you when I'm done. Um, um, but but that's where I'm coming from. But the tension there again. My tension there is I I know that's where we got to go. I'd like to go there. I even use my column to urge us there. And then I do get sand kicked in my face from the Chinese and the Russians as well when I'm the one trying to be the empathetic one. So I, I urge you to also just keep that in mind next time you do your critique of me. But um, uh, that's why I am here talking to you, because I think ultimately we've always agreed we have a long relationship. I, I, I knew where you were coming from. Um, it's in the back of my mind, but these other factors also. Are I'm delighted to hear that. I really appreciate your, your uh, taking the time and using the word non-zero because that is the name of <laughs> my newsletter and a book I wrote. And uh, I, I know you got to go. You, you mentioned to me by email that you had written this email to me in 2003. Are you, do you want me to, do you want me to read it? Do you have time? Sure, go you? ahead. No. Okay. So it's, it was, it's just, it was the, the first I, week of the Iraq war. First time I went into Iraq. This, this is March 30th, uh, less than a month after the invasion. You, of course, you had, as you said, you right. supported yeah. the war, but yeah. you were clearly having doubts early. Here it is. I supported the war if it were done a certain way, but never right. mind. Go ahead. Yeah. You said, dear Bob, I have just kept myself in a holding action since the war began because I don't want to be lurching around from one mood to the other until things are clear to me. But I have to confess, I'm already so deeply worried about what I've seen. I wish we could just pack up and leave. We could claim that we had punished Saddam for not complying with the UN, that we are going to view this operation as a form of aggressive containment, and we will leave before his whole government collapses into our hands. Did you see the picture of the U.S. Army doctor cradling that girl on the front page of our paper today? That is us in Iraq. But I always feared that we would break it and we would own it. And having foolishly done all this without the UN, we will own it alone. I saw this play in Lebanon, and I did not like how it ended. I'm very, 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 very worried. That's four varies. Tell me I am crazy. Uh, that was the email. I, I don't know. I don't. Uh, that was I don't my, know after what I my first. It was my first day in Iraq. That was after my first day inside Iraq. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I think you had it about right. Um, and, I got some, and, I got plenty of things wrong too, but it's well, whatever. it's it's a tribute. It's, yeah. it's a tribute to your your flexibility and your willingness to reconsider things, and and that's the reason you're here. I really appreciate it. Book sounds great. I hope we'll have a chance to talk about it more. Yeah. Anytime. Uh, and and uh, and and thanks again, Tom. We will uh, we'll see you down the road. I really appreciate it. I learned from this, um, and uh, keep annoying me. I'll do, I'll do, if there's one thing, if you ask my wife, what right. gift did God give me? It is to annoy people. Yeah. And I will, I'll do my best. Thanks, Tom. God bless you. You bet.